Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Every Name in Every Nation. It's in honor of Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 26, 2009. Armenia, Auschwitz, Cambodia, Kurdish Iraq, Bosnia, Rwanda, Srebrenica, Kosovo, and now Darfur. Thanks to a person who died 50 years ago this year and who has been all but forgotten to history, this week the world pauses to consider man's inhumanity to man. The readings this week explain why, of all people, Christians should be leaders in this vigil. After his resurrection, Jesus told his followers to spread his message to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, Luke 24:48. In his parallel passage, Mark renders the universal scope even more emphatic by writing to all the world and all creation. Mark 16:15. Similarly, in Luke's sequel to his gospel, Jesus told his timid followers, "You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth." Acts 1:8. In the lectionary reading this week, Peter concludes his sermon by proclaiming that Jesus that in Jesus all people on earth will be blessed by God, Acts 3.25, quoting Genesis 22.18. It's a global promise first made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. The story of Jesus, says Luke, anticipates the restoration of all things, Acts 3.21. God, in other words, remembers every name in every nation. Two radical corollaries follow from this robustly global vision. The decentralization of your geography and the reorientation of your politics. First, Christians are geographic, cultural, national, and ethnic egalitarians. For them, there is no geographic center of the world but only a constellation of points equidistant from the heart of God. Proclaiming that God lavishly loves all the world, each person, and every place, the gospel doesn't privilege any country as exceptional. No one can say they are forgotten, and no one can claim special favor. Much has been written about American exceptionalism. In terms of economic, political, military, scientific, and cultural dominance, America is unrivaled. And in that sense, yes, exceptional. Although there's no reason to think that will continue forever. But from a theological or Christian point of view, America is no more exceptional in God's eyes 
than any other country. While allowing for a natural and wholesome love, even a pride in your own country, there's no place like home, geopolitical egalitarianism subverts the claim of absolute allegiance to any one nation. The claims of the gospel are absolute and unconditional. The claims of the nation and state are relative and conditional. Second, because of this, Christian global vision asks that we care as much about any and every country and its people as we do our own. Christians, in other words, grieve the deaths of Iraqis as much as Americans. We lament the tragedy of the Iranian-Pakistani earthquakes as much as Hurricane Katrina. This implies that our politics becomes reoriented, non-aligned, and unpredictable by normal canons. No state or political party, says Gary Wells, can indulge in the self-sacrifice that Jesus demands when he asks his followers to place the interests of others ahead of our own. <clears throat> this week, the world commemorates the genocide of six million Jews in the Holocaust by observing Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. In 1951, Israel's parliament designated the 27th day of Nisan as Holocaust Day, a day to remember the Jews who perished and those who heroically resisted. In 1959, the Israeli parliament designated Holocaust Day as formal law. And since 1989, the Knesset, in cooperation with Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Martyrs and Heroes Remembrance Authority, performs a ceremony called Everyone Has a Name, in which the names of all the Holocaust victims are read aloud. The term genocide has a very specific history. The word was coined by the eccentric and brilliant Raphael Lemkin, a Polish Jew who almost single-handedly thrust the issue of genocide onto the world stage. On October 16, 1950, after 17 years of Lemkin's tireless labor, the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide was finally ratified by the United Nations. The United States signed 36 years later, on February 11, 1986, after 97 nations had already ratified the convention. When Lemkin died of a heart attack at the age of 59 on August 28, 1959, almost exactly 50 years ago. He was penniless. Before he died, he broadened the notion of genocide beyond the extermination of six million Jews. He had completed a magisterial analysis of a long list of historical cases and themes of genocide, which remains unpublished, and expanded genocide to include the attempted destruction not only of ethnic and religious groups, but of political ones. And the thought that the term should also encompass systematic cultural destruction. 
No person or people is immune from the horrors of Holocaust, either as a perpetrator or a dissenter. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once observed in his Gulag Archipelago that it would be nice if we could neatly divide the world between the insidiously evil and the obviously good. Instead, said Solzhenitsyn, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. A Holocaust survivor once told me that he didn't believe in the collective guilt of an entire people. And so, in other words, there can be good, bad people. A Holocaust survivor described to me one time how a young Nazi guard secretly gave him a sandwich. And as he did, tears streamed down the soldier's cheeks. Conversely, there can be bad, good people. In his book, Unspeakable Acts, Ordinary People, John Conroy says that we tend to caricature torturers as sadistic monsters. But, he says, there's ample evidence that most torturers are normal people that most of us could be the barbarian of our dreams as easily as we could be the victims. Consider the following example from Christian history. The Spaniards came to America for gold and for glory, but they also came for God, to spread the gospel. In a letter to Pope Alexander VI, February 1502, Columbus wrote of his goal in the New World, I hope in our Lord to be able to propagate his holy name and his gospel throughout the universe. The natives they encountered were deemed pagan and subhuman, as their cannibalism and human sacrifices surely proved. Oviedo, a 16th century conquistador and historian of the five-volume work Natural History of the West Indies, described the solution to the problem of Indians who did not want to convert. And I quote, God is going to destroy them soon. Satan has now been expelled from the island of Hispaniola. His influence has disappeared now that most of the Indians are dead. Who can deny that the use of gunpowder against pagans is the burning incense to our Lord? The results of these evangelistic efforts, Todorov estimates that the Spanish conquest of the Americas killed 70 million people by murder, maltreatment such as slavery, and disease, about 90% of the population. In other words, these good Christians construed the wholesale genocide of bad Native Americans as a form of Christian piety. Genocides don't have to happen. We're not destined to slaughter our neighbor. But when we reduce people to a singular identity, such as Jew or gay, it feeds a sense of fatalism, resignation, and a sense of inevitability about violence. Simplistic labels partition people and civilizations into binary oppositions. They ignore the plural ways 
that people understand themselves and obscure what Amartya Sen calls our diverse diversities. In particular, Amartya Sen objects to the Clash of Civilizations thesis, made popular by Samuel Huntington. No, we should never concede that civilizations have to clash. Sin argues against identity violence caused by the illusion of destiny in three ways. First, he appeals to our common humanity. Everyone laughs at weddings, cries at funerals, and worries about their children. More important than any of our external differences, even though these are powerful and important, is our shared humanity. Everyone has a name, a name known and loved by God. Every one of us, Paul affirmed, is God's offspring, Acts 17, 29. Secondly, according to sin, all people enjoy plural identities. To understand a person, we must consider factors of civilization, religion, nationality, class, community, culture, gender, profession, language, politics, morals, family of origin, skin color, and a multitude of other markers. People are complex. We shouldn't reduce them to a single trait. And finally, sin urges us to transcend the illusion of destiny and identity violence by what he calls reasoned choice. We have a choice to make. Instead, as live, instead of living as if some irrational fate destines us to slaughter people who are different, a person needs to make a rational choice about what the relative importance to attach to any single trait. Sin never explains why rational people succumb to the irrational violence of identity instead of choosing enlightened self-interest, economic incentives, and geopolitical peace. But he reminds us of the obvious. We can do better. <coughs> and so this week, as we observe Holocaust Remembrance Day, I pray to move to the place described by the Yale theologian Miroslav Wolf in his marvelous book called Exclusion and Embrace. Listen to Miroslav Wolf. The theme of divine self-donation for the enemies and their reception into the eternal communion of God. As God does not abandon the godless to their evil, but gives the divine self for them in order to receive them into divine communion through atonement, so also should we, whoever our enemies, and whoever we may be. And thus the embrace beyond exclusion, the will to give ourselves to others and to welcome others, to readjust our identities to make space for them, is prior to any judgment about the other, except that of identifying them in their humanity. 
And now for further reflection. Consider the words of the German pastor Martin Niemöller, 1892 to 1984. Niemöller protested Hitler's anti-Semitic measures in person to the Fuhrer. He was eventually arrested and then imprisoned from 1937 to 1945. Niemöller once confessed, It took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He is not even the enemy of his enemies. And finally, consider the poem ascribed to Martin Niemöller although its different versions and exact origins are debated. It often goes by the simple name, First They Came. The poem describes the passivity of German intellectuals as the Nazis purged group after group of targeted people. First they came for the communists, but I was not a communist, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the socialists and the trade unionists, but I was neither, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the Jews, but I was not a Jew, so I did not speak out. And when they came for me, there was no one left to speak out for me. For books this week, I reviewed Jeff Jarvis, What Would Google Do? New York, HarperCollins, 2009, 257 pages. Who could have imagined, asked the tech guru Jeff Jarvis, that a free classified service could have had a profound and permanent effect on the entire newspaper industry? that kids with cameras and internet connections could gather larger audiences than cable networks could, that loners with keyboards could bring down politicians and companies, and that dropouts could build companies worth billions. But so it is, as Google in particular, and a host of other internet companies like Craigslist, Flickr, Wikipedia, Amazon, and Dig have all shown. Companies like these are what Jarvis calls the great disruptors of business as usual. If they are lucky, he says, some companies can be reformed, but others will simply cease to exist because they didn't understand the new rules of the road. Listen to Jarvis. It's hard to name an industry or institution. Advertisers, airlines, retailers, car makers, car dealers, consumer product brands, computer companies, fashion designers, telephone companies, cable operators, political candidates, government leaders, university educators. It's hard to name an industry or institution that should not be asking, what would Google do? Actually, if you want the short version of his thesis, Jarvis points readers to Google's own website, where you can read, quote, 10 things Google has found to be true. His own blog, buzzmachine.com, makes it even easier with 
Five Steps to a Googlier You. In the first half of his book, Jarvis expands on the ten ways and means of googlyification. Forget the mass. Discover a niche. Link unto others as you would have them link unto you. Be searchable. Customers are your advertising agency and marketing department. Speed matters. And then, in the second half of his book, Jarvis applies Google Think to 20 or more business arenas, from newspapers and real estate agents to education and insurance. I like Jarvis best when he told personal stories. Later in the book, however, his breathless boosterisms and his romantic view of all things googly grew stale. But one thing is sure, Google eyes ASAP or get left in the techno dust. If you don't know where to begin, swallow your pride and ask your teenager. Jeff Jarvis, what would Google do? For film this week, I review The Wrestler from 2008. In his real-life Hollywood comeback, actor Mickey Rourke's art imitates his tumultuous life. Rourke stars as Randy the Ram Robinson, a professional wrestler 20 years over the hill. When he can't pay the rent for his sleazy trailer, he sleeps in his rusted van. Duct tape holds his coat together. Steroids have bloated his body. Chemicals make his hair blonde. And a hearing aid dangles from his ear. Hard living, bad luck, and stupid choices have landed Randy the Ram where you might expect, including a severe estrangement from his daughter Stephanie. But he soldiers on, and so we love him and we resonate with him. When the movie ends ambiguously, we wonder about his fate. We hope he'll be okay. In a near mirror image, a stripper named Pam is Randy's only friend, and their mutual commiseration is touching. Who would have thought that a stripper and a wrestler would win our hearts? But such is the skill of director Darren Aronofsky. In one scene, Pam quotes a long passage from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah to and about Randy. She compares him in a clever play on words to the sacrificial ram. And in fact, Randy embodies all the woes of humanity and discovers that even when broken things cannot be fixed, it's still okay. The Wrestler, Mickey Rourke, 2008. And finally this week, with springtime here, we've posted the famous poem, The Daffodils, by William Wordsworth. Wordsworth lived from 1770 to 1850. 
I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or veils and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden, gaff, uh, golden daffodils. Beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie, in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon the inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. William Wordsworth Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 26, 2009. I'm Daniel V. Clendenin.